If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimpo. Mm. There's so, been a few complaints, actually, about the missing pools. I, I just like to say it on Twitter. Is that why you put it back? I thought we'd put it back, yeah. I just thought I'd ignore it because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I saw attention you to it. it up. <laughs> I, no, I did. I looked down, I winced, and I thought, he's at it again. Twitter, stop encouraging him. It's really <laughs> annoying. Okay, just stop it. I have to perhaps warn listeners that Anita's been at her honey and sesame breakfast, which I has have, been known I to... Yes. <laughs> I don't know what made me feel a bit giddy this morning. Uh, yes, anyway. It's very nice. I thought I'd eat like Alexander. Anyway, look, this is why we're here today, because we are discussing a man who thought of himself as a god. He is known in the West, particularly in Greece, as Alexander the Great. In Persia, not so much. Iran, Alexander the Destroyer, they have a very different view of this man. He's also entered both Bollywood and Hollywood, the name at least. So in, I, I don't know whether you've seen the Alexander the Great movie with Colin Farrell and I thought you were about to say Salman Angelina Khan Jolie. And, no, <laughs> no, no this, is the, this is the Hollywood one. Have you not seen Colin Farrell? As, I have. I yes. have seen it. Absolutely. Yes. It very good. Val Kilmer as his terrible father, Philip of Macedon. I preferred Brad as uh, Achilles in the Troy. I thought that was cool. Yes, but that's got nothing to do with this, has it? Nothing at all, but a different story. <laughs> but also it is um, has travelled into sort of India and, and Hindu parlance. So Sikandar means victor a lot of the time. So there's a Bollywood movie, which I just wanted to read you. It's, it, it's Jojita Vohi Sikandar, right? That's the name of the, the movie. And Sikandar is like, you know, whoever wins is Sikandar, which is which is uh, how you say Alexander's name. We should also say it enters Hindu mythology, and there's some theories that Skanda, the son of Shiva, uh, in the south, is a memory of some distant echo of Alexander. 
So I've known him by another name, the son of Shiva, is, is Kartike to me. So Kartike in the north, is yeah. it? Uh, that right? Yeah, is that the same? Are they, are there only two children of Shiva? I think they're the same. I think they're the they're same. same. Yeah. So maybe it is just a yeah a linguistic thing. But can I tell you about Jujita Wohisakandar? Because uh, the, the plot could not be further away from what we're discussing on this podcast, okay? It's evoking the name of Alexander the Great. Sanjay, a carefree young man, experiences mental and physical transformation to complete an intercollegiate bicycle race after his elder brother is unable to participate due to an injury. And that is the story of Jujita Vohi Sikander. Whoever wins is Sikander, Alexander the Great. The real man, though, completely fascinating. So look, we're, we're, we're discussing the end of the Persian Empire, ostensibly, in this podcast. In many ways, this is a story of two men, Alexander the Great and Darius III, who come to power within two months of each other, both fierce warriors, both commanding loyalty from their subordinates, both lofty ambitions and a very high opinion of themselves, true to say, <laughs> isn't it? certainly true. And I, I think that's, in a sense, a very interesting way to look at this story, because in the West, we're always brought up with the version of Alexander, and Alexander's a great hero, and he goes and shatters the, uh, the Persians and the Persian Empire, and, and we all cheer him on. And what I think is interesting from our perspective in this podcast is to, in a sense, slightly try to look at from Darius's perspective, what it must have been like to have this strange army crossing into your territory. Mm. You know, a lot of empires fall when they're in decay. What's interesting about this story is that the Achaemenid Persian Empire is absolutely at the peak of its power at this point, certainly in terms of territorial land holdings. It's stretching from the Bosphorus right through to the Indus. So from Istanbul today to Atak in Pakistan, mm. and quite a lot of sort of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. We always think of Iran as being the same shape as modern Iran. But ancient Achaemenid Persia stretches right over into Central Asia, right up to the, mm. to the Oxus, to the Indus. And it contains hundreds of peoples who today live in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and it's that whole bit of Alexander's story that fascinates me because it's the bit we often forget. But there's a there's a reason. I mean, because a lot of the the talk of Alexander, and you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast. There is a in in the West a Greco-Roman fascination, and you know, those sources mm. are the ones that are looked at. Those things that are in ancient Greek or in Latin. But there is a whole heap of other source material that is written by the vanquished, and that too is interesting. And a lot of this stuff has been dug up fairly recently, or certainly been examined fairly recently. There was a whole pile of cuneiform tablets, which Lloyd was talking at the, about at the beginning of the series. And some of these do refer to Darius III. So we do have these little glimpses of him from Persian sources. But most of the story and most of the telling of the story is based not even on eyewitnesses who saw this from a, a, a Macedonian or a Greek perspective, but Romans looking back to Alexander from 300 years later, mm. sometimes using sources that were contemporary, sometimes adding their own spin, and seeing him as a sort of precursor of the Roman Empire, and seeing their battles with Persia. And Persia, at the time of Rome, was also a great power, and also quite regularly defeated Rome. I've been to this wonderful rock carving just beyond Persepolis, where there is an image of the, the great... Sasanian Persian Shah on his horse and on the ground, head bowed, is the image of the Roman emperor. 
wow. balance, who has just been defeated and led into slavery, and who spends the rest of his life as a slave building Persian bridges wow. uh, in Hamadan and so on. So we get a very inaccurate, late view of this story. And what I think we're going to try and do today on the pod is to try and see a little bit from the Persian perspective, what it must have been like at the, to be at the receiving end of Alexander's advance. Yeah. Well, to, to that end, let's let's start with um, the cast list for this podcast, mm. Darius III. So a, a grandson of Darius II, so Achaemenid by blood, but he was a side branch. He wasn't the main line, was he? And that's, it, it, I mean, is that important or significant or, or do people just forget about that? He's still an Achaemenid, but he has come to power after a period of bloodshed and palace coups. It isn't that the empire is collapsing, they haven't lost territories, the empire is still obedient to the will of the Shah. What year are we talking? We should put a year on this. We're talking in the, in the 320s BCE. So this is now, what, four generations after Xerxes has attempted to conquer Greece and has been driven back, maybe five generations later. And the Persian Empire is still in very fit shape. But there's been a lot of bloodshed and palace coups. So it isn't, it isn't the straightforward father to son line. No, but he's a man who's in the right place at the right time. And he served Ataxerxes III, who is the previous king. Yeah. He's distinguished himself. He's, a, he's the man to send out when one of your satrapies is revolting. And he puts down a Caducian revolt. The Caducians are, are the people who used to be called the Medes. They're the highlanders occupying the mountainous spine of the Elbots between what's now, I suppose, Tehran and the Caspian Sea. Uh, so yes, he's, he's put down a revolt. He's been rewarded with the satrapy of Armenia, which is also under Persian rule at this point. Yeah. And, and the governorship of Persepolis and Pars as well. But you know what? The, the reason he distinguishes himself is because he's willing to, you know, basically front up personally uh, with enemies. So it's single-handed combat that he is willing to take part in. And he is a ferocious fighter. Very important. And so again, we often, from the Roman perspective in the chronicles that give us the versions that we're used to of Alexander's attack, he's often seen Darius III as this weak cowardly character who uh, who loses successive battles but in fact he has an incredible track record as a very successful general and that's how why he gets the job mm. so that's it they choose not the son but they choose darius instead to uh, succeed after ataxerxes tell us a little bit about what persia looks like the state of the empire at that time willie so it, i say it's not a it's not an empire in decline it's an empire at the peak of its territorial glory, if you like, and it is based it's still in Persepolis, which is in southern Iran today, but it stretches down to Baghdad, which is in modern Iraq, and then right down to Egypt. And it, we often forget that Egypt at this period is entirely ruled from Persia. And I say one of the big surprises when you go to Persepolis is the amount of Egyptian-looking architecture there. Uh, you mm. always see in the pictures, the, you know, the obviously Persianate bits, like the, you know, the double bull capitals and so on. But the stuff that looks just like, you know, the temples at Luxor from, from an Agatha Christie film, also lying around in Persepolis. Time to introduce Alexander, son of Philip II of Macedon, always depicted as this golden-haired youth who is, I mean, certainly in, in representations in film and in literature, he is godlike. And he... he 
puts that about himself quite a lot. He describes himself as a son of Zeus as well and identifies with Achilles rather a lot, doesn't he? Well, I think we have a pretty good idea of what he looked like because there are coins dating from his reign. Although most of the ones that you see on the market tend to be fake. They're often the most popular coins. But uh, we know his face and it's much reproduced in classical statuary. So when you go to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, the largest, most perfect face, sort of 40 times life size, this enormous bust of Alexander, which which dominates the classical galleries. So the things, there are certain things that you know, are, are put about a lot about him. I mean, first of all, can we do the origin story and the different origin story? So, I mean, one of them is that his mother, Olympias, is is dreaming that a thunderbolt falls from the sky into her womb directly. The second has Philip dreaming that he seals his wife's womb with a tablet of wax on which there is an impression of a lion. The third has Philip finding his wife, Olympias, having sex with a huge snake, which is meant to be Zeus in disguise. And then becomes pregnant with Alexander. And the thing is, he doesn't mind any of this at all in later life. And it is something that he rather builds on and and actually starts to possibly believe about himself that he is God anointed somehow, not a, not a mere man. In my backpacking youth, I spent a night in a sleeping bag on a sleeping roll in the archaeological site of Pella, uh, which is the Macedonian capital, uh, now in Greece, uh, on the way to Turkey in Thrace. And I remember reading that story about Olympias having sex with a huge snake when mm. I was just sitting on the ground, trying to sleep on the ground, and kept imagining mm. this snake coming. But there were no snakes in Pella when Did I went there. Did he not fancy you? <laughs> 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 so like no traction. Oh. I, I wasn't mistaken for Olympia, so no, oh, sorry, no. boo hiss <laughs> for the snake that didn't like Willie. But look, so so this is a, something that he rather he rather enjoys. This things that we do know about him. His father was Philip of Macedon, who was a difficult father to to grow up with. But his father does try and get him the best education, like every good Indian parent <laughs> searches around for the very best teachers and appoints Aristotle to teach him from the age of thirteen. He is a student of Aristotle. And he, he maintains this fascination throughout his life of talking to philosophers wherever he will go. That's, do you know the stories? I mean, I don't know if it's true or not. When he gets to India, when he goes to Taxila, he, he seeks out the sadhus uh, and, and what he calls the gymnosophists. Yes, the gymnosophists who, who wear no clothes, the, the naked sadhus, and wants to talk and learn about you know their idea of the world and what is good and what is bad and what is heaven and what is hell. But the other one uh, that I really like is that Alexander, according to legend, so I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, and there's no source for this, but he goes into the marketplace to look for Diogenes, the cynic. That's right. Do you know this one? <laughs> he's in a pot or something, isn't he? What's the story? Yes, yeah. he sleeps in a pot. That's right. He sleeps in a clay pot because he's abjured everything. There's a picture of Diogenes in his pot by Raphael in the in the Vatican. You, you can see Diogenes in his pot. I have not seen Diogenes in his pot. <laughs> right. So Diogenes, who is in the marketplace, not in his pot at this moment, Alexander approaches him in the plaza and says, you know, is there anything that I can do for you in great riches? And Diogenes looks Alexander in the eye and says, yes, can you stand aside? You're blocking my son. <laughs> Which is, I think, just, isn't that just brilliant? You don't brilliant? get to be called Diogenes no. the Cynic for nothing. No, exactly. Yeah, and, and then uh, Alexander apparently, and again, this is <laughs> legend probably more than, than history, but he's so charmed, Alexander, who's an arrogant young youth um, who could put anyone to death for their cheek, but he's so charmed by the reply that he says, uh, if I were not Alexander, I would be Diogenes. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's great. It's a good response. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. how to yeah. deal with Twitter trolls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what I want to try and get in here, and what interests me is that certainly I was brought up on this idea of Alexander as the sort of perfect Greek. You know, he's he's depicted in Greek statuary. He he comes from northern Greece. He's taught by Aristotle. But what we're not taught in the West is that Macedon was famous in Greece for being an incredibly Persianate court. Mm. In the first Persian invasion of Greece, Macedon is allied with Darius, and Macedonian soldiers fight with Darius against Sparta. Then later, when Xerxes comes and uh, wants to again invade Greece, he actually stays for an extended period of time with the Macedonians. And the Macedonians take on all this Persianate culture. And you can see it in their art. If you go to Philip of Macedon's tomb today, there is an astonishing new museum they've just put up. And it's not just this pure Greek art. There are you know, many, many signs of Persian influence. And I think that is something that we've got to take on, that it's not two different worlds at war with each other. It's a rebellious ally, which is rebelling against the, the master that's perceived to be weakening. Mm. I don't know whether Alexander spoke Persian, but it's quite probable that his father and grandfather did. That's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. And it, and it is Philip who has this um, notion of, of invading Persia, and it's, it's almost the son inherits the ambition of the father. That's exactly right. And what's fascinating is, is that Philip of Macedon both takes on the Persians, but is living in an incredibly Persianate court. And Philip sits on a throne crafted on the Persian model, and he drinks from silver Caymanid-style right-on cups. So there's wonderful sort of silver horns that you see in, in museums with wonderful prancing tigers at the end of these, these drinking horns. And there are Persian princesses who've been married into the Macedonian court. And it seems to be that, you know, a Persian who visited Pella and went to the Macedonian court would have felt completely at home. And yeah. it's only under Philip's reign that you begin to get a bit of political dissonance. First of all, he starts taking in rebels, Persians who are fleeing the upheavals in the court at Persepolis. And during the reign of Artaxerxes, two brothers called Mentor Memnon of Rhodes, who are rebels against the Shah, come and take refuge in Macedon. And so there is this impression that you're getting in the, I think, the kind of 330 BCs that the Macedonians are beginning to be prepared to cock a snook at the Persians. So the first clash between Macedon and Persia flares up in 341 to 340 BC, when Philip attempts to overpower the Persian-held uh, satrapies in Byzantium, in modern Istanbul. And he takes those cities, and then he goes into Asia Minor, and he takes 10,000 Macedonian soldiers uh, in the summer of 336 under the command of his generals Parmenian and Atalos. Uh, and so he, uh, Philip of Macedon is the first to actually invade properly into Persian territory, but the invasion doesn't go as well. He retreats back into his territory. But there is a precedent for Alexander in what his father has done. Okay, and it seems that, you know, two years later after that, 334 BC, is when Alexander, possibly on the plans that his father had made, Absolutely. does his own 
try at Persia. Um, he crosses the Hellespont. And first of all, what is the Hellespont? We use that phrase. What is, exactly is the Hellespont? It's the waterway which links the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. And it is this stretch of water which separates Europe from Asia. And mm. it's always been an incredibly symbolic stretch of water. And anyone going from Europe to Asia or from Asia to Europe at that period of history had to cross the Hellespont, whether in the boat or if you're Lord Byron, you swim it. And yes. um, my old friend, friend, my mentor, Patrick Lee Fermore, who is the, the wonderful travel writer and who, who I hero worshipped uh, as a teenager and used to go and see, he, in his 60s, did the same. He, cr he swam the Bosphorus with his wife following in a dinghy to try and wave off any tankers coming to run him down. Very patient <laughs> wife to be doing that. <laughs> but that. anyway, look, so Alexander, when he crosses the Hellespont or Bosphorus, he does so with 30,000 soldiers, 5,000 cavalry. It's hard to keep that many troops a secret. And one of Darius's spies sees what he's up to. And so the news goes back, he's coming. Yes, and this is three times the invasion force that his father had taken. So he's from the beginning, he's serious. It's quite clear that this is not a, you know, a little uh, raid or a border skirmish. 30,000 troops gathered from across the Macedonian lands is a major invasion force. This is the Macedonian equivalent of D-Day. Right. And, and what I love about the spy's report is that the spy goes back to the Persian court and says, this is the way he did this. He marked his arrival in the Persian Empire by hurling a spear into the ground and claiming, I am the new Achilles. I am going to avenge the Greeks who lost their livelihoods when Xerxes marched on Greece. So right from the get-go, you know, the, just his reputation precedes him and this sort of godhead business that he wraps himself very tightly in is reaching the Persian court. So whether any of this actually ever happened is hugely open to question. And many scholars say that this is just, you know, this sort of later propaganda. Roman, not, not even propaganda, later complete rewriting of this history to reflect Rome's view of what Alexander should have been. And there's absolutely no evidence at all for anything at the time. We do have evidence of uh, Darius's response, though. What does Darius do? So Darius, I think, initially is not nervous. He has his satrapies in Anatolia who are meant to deal with this. And I think it's from Sardis that the local rulers go and confront this force. I don't think the full scale of this invasion had been, uh, been recognised yet in Persepolis. And so Darius does not mobilize. He just gets his local guys to take on these Greeks. And we should say that the Macedonians didn't, up to this point, have a massive military reputation. They were regarded by the Greeks as northern barbarians and by the Persians as distant allies from the furthest end of the civilized world. So it wasn't that everyone thought that the Macedonians were the great military power which had to be feared. So Darius just sends his local guys to take on this. And of course, they are quickly and instantly defeated. And Alexander then does a mopping up operation on the coast. He goes right around the coast of Lydia, modern Western Turkey, and wipes out all the signs of Persian resistance. And we should remember that this area today, Western Turkey, was full of Greek-speaking city-states that had been under Persian rule. So as a Greek speaker, Alexander could have expected a certain amount of local support, and many of people would have regarded the Persians as foreign occupiers who were taking their taxes. So there's every reason to think that Alexander's 
force, if not welcomed as liberators, were certainly not seen as, as something to be frightened of or, or resisted by the locals. So, I mean, Darius might have been quite relaxed when, you know, the, these first reports come from his spies that there's a large Macedonian troop movement coming into his territory. But these defeats start making him nervous. And what makes him even more nervous is that Alexander has the temerity to start issuing coins within the lands that he conquers. You know, so this is this is an absolute tweaking of the Persians' noses, saying, you know, I'm the one on the coins. I'm the one who rules. And this is clearly showing that Alexander is not just doing a border raid that he's not wanting to take uh, Byzantium on the, on the western coast, that he's actually really marching into the Persian heartlands and is serious. So this is the point that Darius mobilizes himself. And when he hears about the defeat of his satraps at Zaleia in what's now northeastern Turkey, he starts to gather an enormous army. And he, I think he's in Babylon when he first hears the news, in 333. And he gathers this enormous army from across Mesopotamia and marches down into what's now eastern Turkey. And I've been to the site of the battle which takes place. It's, it's at a place called Issus, which is north of modern Antakya. And it's in this dusty plain. I remember actually getting off a bus when I was going somewhere else just to have a look at the plains of Issus, uh, having read all these these wonderful stories. What did it look like when you saw it? Well, yeah. I loved Robin Lane Fox's biography of Alexander and had it with me when I was on this journey, and I got off this bus, I don't know, 20 or 21 or something. And it was early morning, and there was this misty plain stretching down towards the Mediterranean. And in the north, there were what's called the Cilician Gates, which are these enormous mountain range, which has one path which leads towards Persia. And so Alexander's waiting at the bottom of the Cilician Gates when Darius comes with this enormous army of Mesopotamian troops. Darius doesn't just come with his army. Can I just also report that he comes with his mother, his wife, his daughter, <laughs> her younger sister, Darius's son and heir, a five-year-old boy called Ochus, which is a very odd thing because it's almost like a little family holiday rather than you know going into battle. Well, it, again, it's an indication that he, he's not taking Alexander to be a sort of uh, you know apocalyptic threat at all, no. no. So one reason that Darius may have brought his family on this family holiday is that south of Antioch was the great classical holiday destination, if you like, the sort of Florida or the Tuscany of the classical world. And I th think I'm right in saying that's where Andy Cleopatra go on honeymoon. So maybe Darius had a similar maybe sort it of... Really is a, it is a family <laughs> trip and we'll just vanquish these pesky Macedonians on the way. Get rid of these pesky Macedonians, they will go off on a nice romantic holiday with all my wives. So he takes, you know, his nearest and dearest with him. He, crucially, and this is going to be important for later in this story, there was also a satrap called Bessus with him who rules the powerful satrapy of Bactria. Remember that because it's going to be important later on in Alexander's story. And Bactria is famous for having a really very fierce cavalry. So here he is, he's tooled up, he's got his family, he's made promises to his little son, and the armies meet at Issus. So tell us what happens at Issus. So Issus is, as I said, just below the Cilician Gates in eastern Turkey today, north of Antioch. And it's inland, it's on a flat plain with mountains in the distance. And Darius has got a much larger army than Alexander. He's pulled in all the spare troops he could find in Mesopotamia. And 
these figures are never agreed by historians, but the figures I've read are about 108,000 Persians under Darius's command. Well, Alexander has a very large force, but about half that, 40,000, including mm. his cavalry. So the Persians are in a very confident mood. They not only brought their lovely sort of family on, en route to a holiday, but they are very confident that this enormous army can make mincemeat of Alexander's still, you know, unproven forces. It's all very well defeating the local chieftains and, uh, and governors in the uncivilized western half of the Persian Empire, but it's a totally different thing taking on the immortals, the crack troops from, from Persepolis and from the Persian heartlands. But they do. They take them on and they defeat them. I mean, I, I'm sort of trying to understand how that happens. So Darius doesn't understand how it happens. And we certainly get very confusing and uh, offer very conflicting accounts of the battle in the Roman sources. There are no Persian sources for this battle. It isn't referred to in Persian sources. So at least in the Roman sources, Alexander leads personally a charge across the Pinaris River, which separates the two, shattering one of the Persian flanks. And at this point, he cites Darius, and we have this picture in the Roman sources, whether it's true or not, of these two leaders meeting each other. And Darius is in his war chariot, while Alexander is on his horse with his companion cavalry. So you have these two legendary elite forces, the Macedonian phalanx and the Persian immortals meeting for the first time. And the Persians depend on their arrows, and they're expecting the the Greeks to crumble before this, this incredible rain Gosh. of arrows that come mm. pouring down on them. And you can imagine them raising their shields and the sound of the, of the arrows bouncing off the shields. But it doesn't do the job. And the, the Macedonians carry on both the cavalry and the foot soldiers. And Darius, realizing that they're coming for him, turns his chariot about and flees the battlefield. Now, you could take two different attitudes to that. The Roman historians definitely depict Darius as this coward who's not up for a battle. But of course, it's the most sensible thing to do. Many, many other leaders, when they see a disaster in a battle, make the decision to fight another day. And this seems to be what Darius is doing. Yeah, and you're right to caution us about some of the, the, the Roman sources. I mean, the Plutarch, um, who I, I guess is trying to magnify Alexander's bravery and his great victory, estimates that, I mean, you said about 108,000 men under Darius, but Plutarch puts the Persian forces at 600,000, which is yeah. which is just <laughs> impossible, but it does tell a good tale, doesn't it? Yeah, it's certainly the wrong figure. But again, to try and get... We can make estimates of, of the losses. And the figures you read about in, in, in the scholarly sources say about 7,000 Macedonians die on the fields of Issus, while Darius loses 20,000, most of them in flight. It's always when you're fleeing a battle that you're at your most vulnerable. Right, because you're showing your back. You turned your yeah. back and you're running. Yeah. And the, the Macedonians have this fantastic companion cavalry, which just chase after the, after the Persians and cut them down. It's a good point to take a break. Join us after the break when we find out what Alexander does after this victory over Darius and the Persians. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples 
free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So just before the break, we had the Persian forces fleeing, a surprised um, Darius who really had underestimated Alexander, who has now been forced to turn around and leave the battle at Issus and has sustained a huge number of casualties. And this leaves Alexander to take the spoils. And we're talking a lot of loot. I love I love a list of loot. What are we talking about? <laughs> also very important, he captures... He captures Darius's bathtub. Well, that's uh, what I mean. This is the list of loot to which I... Alluded. Was it a gold bathtub? I'm hoping it was bathtub. a golden bathtub. And he apparently has uh, a bath in the bathtub uh, and remarks, so this, it seems, is royalty. So again, you, you know, we ha- mustn't rewrite history in retrospect. Pella, where Alexander grew up, is by the standards of, of Persepolis and Susa a very small and very minor court. And they didn't have all this stuff. I mean, if you go and see Philip II's grave goods, he's got a nice crown and he's got some gorgeous weaponry, but it isn't Persepolis. It isn't the great king. And yeah. Alexander's eyes, by all accounts, are on stalks when he, he sees all this stuff. I mean, the, the, the bathtub is exciting and interesting, but it's not the most important thing that he takes after this victory at Issus, because he also seizes the Persian baggage train and the royal harem. Because remember, Darius has brought his family and friends to this battle, which, you know, looking back is a little bit baffling. But he, he captures 
Darius's wife and children, the five-year-old heir, Ocus, that we were speaking about before the break, and a number of important Persian noblewomen. And this is really important symbolically. Why? Because it means that uh, Darius has lost his honour. And his future, his heir. And his future, his heir. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a massive humiliation. There has been no precedent for this in the whole of Persian history. Since uh, Cyrus founds the empire, uh, there's never been a loss like this. And then, almost insultingly, Alexander doesn't try to finish Darius off. He doesn't head directly into Persia. He goes off on what seems at the time to be a baffling detour, Southwards. Towards Egypt. He takes, well, first of all, he takes you know, the coast around Antioch and Daphne and heads down through that coast, through the Phoenician coast, past Byblos, Tyre, and Sidon, through Gaza, where, where war is waging at the moment, and he goes into Egypt. Tyre is really important because Tyre is a, a crucial port for the Persian navy. So these are strategically very important. It's also very interesting that a number of these states just give up. They surrender to Alexander because by now he's he's a rolling stone. Yeah. And so, you know, people have this fear of what might happen if they don't give in. And there is an estimate that um, Alexander, after one protracted siege, puts to the sword roughly 6,000 to 8,000 people, enslaves 30,000. So, you know, this this fear, this cloak of fear that now uh, is is sort of also around his body, as well as this divinity, this self-proclaimed divinity that, that people talk about, is making him just ferocious by name alone. Yes, I think what would have not surprised anyone at the time was the 30,000 enslaved. It's, it's a horrific figure for us to contemplate, all these people being led away in chains, but that was the nature of ancient warfare. But what was more unusual at the time, I think, was the killing the 8,000 people from Tyre, because normally you you took people hostage or took them prisoner, and you used their services, and people lived on. But Alexander doesn't. He commits a terrible massacre in Tyre, and then he heads on through Gaza, which falls after another siege, into Egypt. And it's there that two really interesting things happen. First of all, he founds Alexandria, which goes on, of course, to be the great city of learning uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean and the place of, of the great, great library. Um, but he goes on down to, uh, to, to uh, Upper Egypt uh, and goes uh, to visit and then restore some of Egypt's most ancient temples. He proclaims himself king of Upper and Lower Egypt, son of Ra and beloved of Amun. Uh, but it's what happens next that really intrigues me. And this is a story that I've always been fascinated in because having reached what will become Alexandria, having founded this city uh, uh, on the Mediterranean coast and established this extraordinary port that will go on to be the great city of the region, he then heads into the desert towards the Siwa Oasis. You've been there. I've seen your snaps from last year. You were in Siwa. Not only have I been there, I was there for yeah. Christmas last year. And this is somewhere I had always, always wanted to see because again, I love, love these stories. The pictures that you sent me, I mean, it did look as though you were on the home planet of Tatooine. If anyone watches <laughs> Star Wars, it very much looked like that's where you were. I mean, it was just sort of these, I mean, describe it. You're, you describe it there, your, your pictures. It's amazing. Yeah. So 
even today from Alexandria, it's a pretty epic journey. It takes all day across desert roads. Uh, you leave at dawn and you get there long after dark. And you travel for mile after mile after mile through pretty serious deserts. But Alexander, in the middle of this war, when, when Darius III is amassing a new force in Persepolis, in, in the Persian heartlands, and Alexander just goes off on a sort of year-off jaunt into the desert. A gap with year. A gap year trip <laughs> gap year in, in the, the middle desert. of all this. <laughs> yes. And he heads off into the desert. And it is, I'd say, even today, a pretty ferocious journey. But at that time, on horseback, without metal roads, without any sort of roads. Well, without water for much yeah. of the, you know, the distance that you're traveling. Siwa, which is right on the edge of the Libyan desert. And you get there today, and it is one of the most otherworldly places I've ever been in my life. Out of the desert, suddenly, this incredible blue lake opens out with this spectacular sort of kingfisher lapis blue glinting in the light. And... Around the lake are these sort of mountains of the moon, these bare, gnarled, eroded mountains that look as old as time itself. Mm. And today, when you go there, it's all made in mud brick because there's no stone to build with in the area. And the mud brick is half eroded and collapsing, and it's, it's sort of going back to the desert. And in the middle of this is the temple that Alexander went to. And the reason he went there was that in Siwa was this great oracle that could tell the future. It was regarded in classical times as the equal of the oracle of Delphi. Of Delphi. Even sometimes regarded as, as a more powerful oracle, because Delphi was accessible to the Greeks. Like anyone could go to Delphi if they made the effort. Mm. But Siwa was almost impossible to get to. Was he, was he a fancy oracle, like a blind oracle or a one-legged oracle? I mean, what, what do we know of the oracle of Siwa? Anything? Well, when you go there today, it's a surprisingly small building. The old Egyptian temple still stands completely intact. Uh, and it's up on a hill overlooking the lake with these massive bantering Egyptian walls. What's a bantering wall? Bantering means uh, a sloping wall. Oh, a sloping wall. I did not. I've learned a thing. They banter inwards. So that, that right. it's, that, it's like a 45 degree angle. Mm -hmm. And around the edge are these ancient, ancient Egyptian carvings of the gods of Horus, of Isis. Uh, but the particular oracle at Siwa is the oracle of Zeus Ammon. And the story goes that Alexander goes in alone and has a personal audience with the oracle, during which he's told that he is indeed the son of Zeus and that Philip II was only his mortal father. Now, again, we have no idea no whether idea. this is true or not, no. whether whether he was actually told that or whether this is a later... Yeah, he's excited enough about what he is told. We don't know what he was told, but he is excited. He writes to his mother and he says, I've got secrets from the oracle, but I can only tell you in your own ear. I can't write them down. So when I get to Macedon, I'll tell you all about it. It is literally the most frustrating as a mother. This is what happens. <laughs> Mind you, if you tell you, mum, I'll tell you later. If you're Olympus you know. and you've been having a having a good time with a snake, you'd probably know what your son has discovered. Well. So uh, anyway, so I, I would anyone anyone <laughs> before, before we allow that thought to okay. to, to go too yeah. far. Anyone ever wants to go to the most otherworldly place I've ever been, possibly with the exception of parts of Tibet, 
Yeah. Siwa is that. You should you should actually put some of your pictures up on Twitter when this goes out. I will. I will do that. But while while he's having this extraordinary gap here, <laughs> gap yard. <laughs> Which he kind of is. Yeah, exactly. Because he's still young. He's yeah. finding himself. It's what they do <laughs> on the gap yard. Anyway, so he's finding himself uh, with the oracle of Siwa. What is Darius doing? Because I cannot think that Darius is going to take that defeat lying down. And he's a mighty ruler. He's a mighty ruler with access to an enormous number of funds as well. This is a very rich empire, his Persian empire. So what, what does he do? So Darius III is all set to use both stick and carrot. On one hand, he reaches out to Alexander and asks for his family back, understandably. No one wants to lose their wife, their heir, their concubines, the entire harem. And he promises allegedly half of the Persian empire to Alexander if he will give the family back and retire. And the story goes that Alexander's general Parmenion advised Alexander to accept the offer. And Alexander replies that if he were Parmenion, he would, but he won't because he's Alexander. It's one of those sort of irritating things that Alexander tends to say. But Darius has a second policy, which is, of course, to rearm. And while Alexander's been going around, messing around with oracles in Siwa, Darius has been building up his forces. And you've got to remember that the, you know, the Persian Empire was centered not in Asia Minor, but in Mesopotamia. So as far as Darius is concerned, he's still got all his heartlands, and he's got also the whole of Bactria, the whole of Afghanistan, the whole of Pakistan, and he's drawing troops in from all these areas and preparing to make another stand. So as you say, the carrot doesn't work, but you know he's got a pretty big stick as well, William, and he has been hiring new recruits. He's preparing for a rematch because this is not going to go the way Alexander wants it. Darius is, is angry. He wants to, to get his own back. New types of weapons, including war elephants from India, which is just I love it. Yeah. a fabulous detail, a war elephant. Because all the area that's now modern Pakistan was in the Persian Empire. And right. you have descriptions of Indian troops fighting in earlier Persian campaigns, such as in, in Thermopylae and, and Salamis. There are Indian legions fighting there, which we, we again, we, we often forget all this. We don't think about, yeah. So he's got his war elephants, he's got new types of, of weaponry, he's got newly trained recruits, but but again and again, he gets bad omens. I mean, this is a time where great meaning is, is read into the activities of the natural world. So there is a week before this, this battle is meant to be planned. And already you've got a Persian force that is, you know, has been shaken by what just Alexander's audacity and just how much he has managed to take and where he has managed to go where no other Greek or Macedonian has gone before. So just over a week before them, they're, they're meant to meet and it, they're going to meet at, at a place called Gargamela. Which is kind of near Erbil in what's today Iraqi Kurdistan, where, where Saddam Hussein committed those terrible atrocities with gas. Uh, that's very close to the site of Gargamela. Brilliant to, to point that out. The moon, though, just a week before this battle, has turned blood red and then black. I mean, I, I wonder if that is, that, it, 
I mean, is it an eclipse? I mean, I'm sure somebody it's, would it's be able eclipse. to tell us. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's an eclipse. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the blood red moon before, I mean, I've, I've seen eclipses. I mean, my husband and I go and follow eclipses. I've not seen that sort of redness of the moon, but that's what they report. Then on another night, they see a meteor flashing across the sky. But the Persian priests aren't sure how to interpret this. And it could be good. They go to Darius. <laughs> could be good, could be bad. Not really sure. But it does really put the shakes into some of his troops. Uh, and then they receive terrible the news, the news. Yeah. terrible, terrible news, where, which you can't mistake for it could be good, it could be bad. But Darius's wife, Stateria II, has died in childbirth. So, you know, whatever you wanted to read into the natural world, that part of it is unmistakably bad. And of course, the possibility, even the suggestion is that the child that has killed the queen could have been Alexander's child. The Romans right. make this great play for Alexander being this figure of a sort of chivalry and, and, and perfection. And they actually praise Alexander's courteous treatment of Darius's captured Hari. But it's unclear. And many scholars believe that it's much more likely, given the, the way that people treated captives in those days, yeah. uh, that uh, the queen is raped and that she dies in childbirth from Alexander's child, which puts again, this remember is a man that's just massacred the, all the inhabitants of Tyre. And it puts a very dark spin on Alexander, which which the, the Roman sources try to polish up. Well, they, always, they leave that out or they play it down. Or, exactly. or in fact, the way the Roman sources play it is that this is a child of destiny. This is a child that mixes the royal bloods of the house of Persia and the house of Macedon, who could be a really potent figure in any kind of conquered future. Take us to the night before the battle. So all of this, Darius knows. He's seen the sky turn red. He's seen it turn black. He's, his, his, his seers have seen meteors flash across the sky. And now he's had this devastating news that his wife has been killed by a child that may not even have been his. What is the night before the battle like? Darius has chosen this site. This is absolutely where Darius wants the battle to take place. And for weeks in advance of this, he's been waiting for Alexander. He's camped here in this position he thinks is, is the perfect battle site. And they've flattened all the surrounding vegetation in order to give the best conditions for the Persian chariots. You've got to remember that the Persians' two main fighting weapons of the elite troops was not the sword, but it's the arrow and the spear. So if you're a Persian aristocrat, you have a chariot, someone's driving the chariot, and you are pouring arrows into the enemy, and then at the last minute, you've got your spear to throw at him. And so they prepared the perfect plane. But the Macedonians come and they study the battlefield the night before. And there's bright moonlight. It's a full moon. Darius just can't get a break from the sky, can he? The sky is not helping him at all. And so there's no surprise. And the Persians spot Alexander's cavalry scouting out the battlefield. And they think there's going to be a night attack. So they stay awake the whole night. So what actually happens, of course, is that you have an exhausted Persian army when dawn breaks the next day. And join us for the next podcast when you'll find out what happens when those first rays of sun hit these troops that are now facing each other for a decisive battle. And if you can't wait to hear the next episode of Empire, when we're going to take this story of Alexander the Great to its conclusion, and we see what will be 
I mean, this is like a William Dalrymple spoiler alert, <laughs> but the end of the Persian Empire. I've got some very, very good news for you. If you join the Empire Club as a friend of the show or a gold tier member, yes, we have gold tiers, not baths, but tiers, you can hear the next episode of Empire. All you need to do is go to www.empirepoduk.com. That's www.empirepoduk.com. And if you do sign up, oh, we're going to see you in a minute. You won't have to wait at all. And if not, we will see you as soon as the next normal pod episode is delivered. Uh, So until then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Trumple. <laughs>